In our study of Revelation, we have done the first two sections of this chapter. Seems like it's taken us about a month with uh, interruptions here and there, but uh, we'll get through it and we're going to try to finish it today. So Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to read starting at verse 13, the last part of the chapter down through the end, 13 through 17. Let me just set the stage for you already. Um, Remember, we are going through the timeline of the tribulation uh, in Revelation, and we've seen the seven seals already opened. Out of the seventh seal came the seven trumpets. We had the sixth trumpet judgments, and then the seventh trumpet was blown, but we haven't seen the effects of it yet, and that was in chapter 9. Chapter 10 begins kind of a parenthetical I guess, well, chapter 10, 11, 12, especially chapter 12, and then as we go 13 and 14, there's parenthetical information in these chapters, 12, 13, and 14, that fill in the blanks for us. And we saw that this goes back at the beginning of chapter 12 all the way back to creation to, to explain to us the great conflict of history. And we've been introduced to both Satan and the woman, remember the pregnant woman, Uh, That represents Israel, and Satan's goal all through history has been to thwart God's plan by trying to destroy Israel, by trying to stop the Messiah from coming, and then from stopping the Messiah from accomplishing his purpose, and now just basically in destroying Israel. Okay, and that's what we come to at the end of chapter 12. In the middle of chapter 12, a couple weeks ago, we had the great war in heaven, where the hosts of Satan we're fighting against the angels of God led by Michael. And uh, we know Satan was cast out. And as we left that part of the passage, Satan was cast to the earth with all his demons and confined there, never again to be able to go before God to accuse the brethren. And this happens right about the midpoint of the tribulation period. And so he turns his wrath upon those on the earth, and we'll see that here beginning in chapter 13, or in uh, chapter 12, verse 13. Now the last verse we read so far in chapter 12 has a woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And in this passage, we're going to see why that woe begins, okay? So we're going to start reading in verse 13 and round, down through the end of the chapter. The Bible says here, "...and when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth..." He persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let's take a minute and pray, and then we'll look at this passage together. Lord, again, as we come before you, and as we open your word before us, Lord, we need your help, we need your guidance, we need your spirit to teach us. Lord, it's impossible to understand these things as difficult as they are without you. And even with you, Lord, we need to submit to your teaching to really seek and be diligent in our uh, searching of the truth here to be able to understand what you're teaching us. So guide us today, we pray, 
and open our minds to receive that, what you have for us. Lord, and I want you to use me as a weak human being, finite in my thinking, and yet, Lord, you can speak through me as your instrument, and so I ask that you would fill me with your spirit now. I pray that you would give me your wisdom to speak to us today so that we might learn directly from you. And Lord, accomplish your work now in us, and accomplish your work in this time. And may you have the preeminence in all the glory, and we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, as we come to the end of chapter 12 then, we have been already introduced to the participants of the great conflict of history, Israel, God's chosen people, and Satan, who is the the great dragon or the red dragon described here, who is trying to destroy Israel and thwart God's plan for the Messiah and for God's redemption for mankind. Okay, in the second part of the chapter, as I mentioned, we see this great conflict arise in heaven between the holy angels of God, led by the, the archangel Michael and the demon hosts of Satan. Now, I'm going to stop here just to give you a note here, um, because I was posting this message up to YouTube a couple weeks ago, and you... and. Um, Spell check does not help me in these things because when I put the description, I put the great conflict was in heaven between the holy angels of God and Santa's demons of hell, okay? I don't know how true or untrue that is. It's Satan, not Santa, that we see here, and so I just wanted to make that clear, okay? So we're looking at Satan's attack. Here he's been thrown out of heaven at the end of that passage with all of his demons and confined to the earth. And so he's about to take his revenge upon the people that are on earth because that's all he has access to now. He can no longer go to God and, con- and, uh, and um, show or accuse them of wrongdoing before the Father in heaven. So he takes out his wrath, and his wrath here is focused on Israel. He goes back to the woman that he's been focused on all the time, but now it's in earnest. It's a very focused attack. Okay, and that's what we see in verse 13. When the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. The word persecuted here in the Greek is dioko. It means to pursue or hunt, not just to bring hurt against, but to pursue or hunt. So he's literally hunting them down. Now, we have to remember that Satan is not omnipresent. Satan is not everywhere at once. He's not God. He's a created being, and so he cannot be everywhere at once. He has millions of demons at his disposal who help him, but Satan cannot know everything and does not know everything. He knows a lot, but he has to work to gain information, just like we have to work to gain information. And here, he's hunting down God's people, specifically Israel, to cause harm and destroy them. That's what that word persecute means. And so his wrath now is specifically focused on hunting down and destroying every last Jew that remains as a last gasp effort to try to thwart God's plan and accomplish his goal of trying to keep God from keeping his promises to them. If he can destroy all of Israel, some of God's promises are still yet unfulfilled. And so he will accomplish, in his mind, making God a liar, because God did not fulfill those promises then. That's not what's going to happen, but that's Satan's attempt here. So he has this earnest persecution of the Jews. And in that earnest persecution, the Bible tells us Satan will succeed in the tribulation period in killing two-thirds 
of the Jewish nation that remains alive in the tribulation. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 tells us that. It shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein, talking about the people of Israel. So Satan will succeed in having two-thirds of the Jews killed or die. So this is going to be an especially harsh time for anybody who is a Jew, who is of the nation of Israel, as Satan attacks them. And that's why in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Jeremiah describes this time specifically as a time of Jacob's, Jacob's trouble. It is worse than any other period in history before it. So we have Satan, in verse 13, attacking persecuting, hunting down Israel. Then verse 14, To the woman were given two wings of the great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the face of the serpent. This is Israel's flight into the wilderness. They escape Satan's persecution. Not all of them, but the remnant that God is going to preserve. Okay, This is the remnant of Israel that will survive the persecution, the torment from Satan, and the death that he's bringing upon Israel. And many of them will be saved in this way specifically through this event here. Now it says God provides them, or they're given, two wings of a great eagle. There's a lot of imagery in this chapter. Okay, Remember, it starts off with two great signs in heaven. There's the red dragon, there's a woman. We're not talking about a literal dragon and a literal woman. They symbolize something. The dragon represents Satan. The woman represents Israel. So when it talks about the woman fleeing and given wings, there's imagery here that we have to understand. And this imagery is not new in Revelation. This is a picture of God's providential protection and his help given to them to protect them from an enemy. The same imagery is used all the way back in Exodus chapter 19 when God delivered Israel from the Egyptian army at the Red Sea. In fact, God says to them in Exodus 19.4, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. So John is receiving the same imagery here of God's provision and protection that God used to describe his deliverance in the Red, from the Red, at the Red Sea from the Egyptians. So it's not that this, the people sprouted wings and were able to fly. Okay? It's not a literal translation. This is imagery that we have here. And so it's symbolic of God's provision and protection in helping them escape the wrath of Satan through the Antichrist. Some people believe this reference to eagle's wings is a reference to great military transport planes that will evacuate the Jews when this persecution begins. Now, it's possible. I don't know how these people are protected. It doesn't tell us that. But these wings do not represent airplanes, okay? They may use airplanes. I doubt it because of where they go, and I'm going to explain that in a minute, okay? But that's not the point, okay? If we try to look at this stuff and try to say, oh, well, wings, that must be an airplane. You know, when we talked about the locusts, I mentioned that some people look at the description of the swarms of locusts that come out of the abyss. Oh, that's helicopters with hippie pilots, you know, and they're shooting people. See, if we try to interpret stuff like that, then we miss the big point, okay? We miss the important stuff. The important stuff is what God is teaching us, the principles and the events that are happening. Here, the focus is on God's provision. Now, we don't know specifically how God will help them escape. But it says 
He gives them eagles' wings so that they are able to flee away from the Antichrist and Satan's persecution into the wilderness. That's what verse 14 is talking about. All right? And this fleeing will actually be a fulfillment of what Jesus taught in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Now, we've seen how in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus talked about a lot of the things that are going to happen in the tribulation period. Okay, we've seen different persecutions, the different judgments, the seals that were opened, the, the trumpets that were blown already, and the judgments that came upon the earth. And Jesus talked about all of them. And he talks about this event as well. He says in Matthew 24, 15 through 22, When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him which is in the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. But pray that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the sake of the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. That passage that is in Matthew 24 is Jesus specifically talking about this event that we read in Revelation chapter 12. The fleeing of Jews from Israel as the Antichrist turns against them at the midpoint of the tribulation and seeks to destroy them. All right. Now, we have to remember in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to Jews, not generally the church. Okay? So this is prophetic of this time period in the tribulation. Secondly, he gives them a specific sign. And any Jew who knows the Bible and who listens to Jesus' words, who is a believer at this point, will listen to what he says. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple... That's your sign. Get out. And that's why many Jews flee. Because they have had the warning. And that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do at the midpoint of the tribulation, is bring in an abomination of desolation, an image that he sets up in the temple, and causes or or forces everybody to worship him as a god. That's the sign for the Jews to flee. That's what Jesus says. In fact, in chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, has this same reference. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's the Antichrist setting the peace treaty with Israel for seven years. And in the midst of the week, or at the midpoint, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, I know there's a lot of big words in there, okay? But basically what Daniel received is exactly what Jesus said. At the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to break his peace treaty with Israel. He's going to desolate the temple, set up a false image, and cause all worship to cease that does not go to him. And that's the sign for Israel to run. Because he's going to come against them at that point. And in Matthew Matthew 24, verse 16, Jesus tells them, When you see that sign, flee into the mountains. Now, I want to point out some words, because when Jesus says flee into the mountains, there's a reference there that I don't want you to miss. We're going to come back to this, okay? In chapter 12 of Revelation, look at where they flee. 
in verse 14. To the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness. So we have two references, one to mountains, one to wilderness. So these are wilderness mountains. Becomes important. Hang with me. I'll, I'll tell you why, okay? The only wilderness mountains in this area around Jerusalem are to the east of Israel in the land of Jordan. Okay, they're very desolate. There's hardly anybody still that lives there. But they're mountainous area that's mostly bare rocks and desert. It's down, it's where Jordan is today. Okay, so this is where they flee. In Old Testament times, this was the area of, I'm sorry, Edom, Ammon, and Moab. Keep those names in mind because we're going to come back and revisit them. Okay, so... The only reason that's important is because when we get in the middle of verse 14, where do they flee? It says, into the wilderness, but into her place. Now, I want you to jump back up to verse 6, because we already talked about this place that God has prepared. Verse 6, this is the same event, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred threescore days. Same thing that's happening in verse 14, same time period of the three and a half years of the end of the tribulation, where Israel, the Jews who believe, will be protected by God. But it's a place already prepared. That's what the Bible says here in, in, chapter, in verse 6. And so when, it get, when you get to verse 14, it says, into her place, that place already prepared by God. So when we come to this, these passages and look at this, we, we, obviously the, the question may come to many minds, okay, where exactly is this? Now, I've given you a general region in Jordan, in the mountains, wilderness mountains, in the desert. But with this and other references in Scripture, we can take an educated guess as to where this place is. And I believe it's in Petra, okay? It's a rock city that's been carved out of the mountains. It's existed for thousands of years, but it's basically abandoned at this point, and it's a tourist attraction. Now, let me give you the case for Petra, and I'm going to give you some scriptures as well that points to this as being the refuge that God has prepared for them. All right, I already told you that it's an ancient city carved out of the rocks of the mountains in southern Jordan, just east of the, of the, the south part of Israel. Okay? In Old Testament times, this area was known as Basra. Actually, there was a city called Basra. That is the city of Petra today. And it's believed that some of the first inhabitants of that, of that area were Edomites, descendants of Esau. And we've already heard that name, Edom, right? That's where... Uh, that's the area where Esau's descendants lived, in, in that area of Jordan. Yet, God promised to wipe the Edomites out of existence because of their persecution of Israel. And he did. He destroyed them. You will not find remnants of Esau on the earth today. God wiped them all out because they persecuted Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 49, verse 13, this is God speaking. For I have sworn by myself, saith the Lord, that Basra shall become a desolation, a reproach, a waste, and a curse, and all the cities thereof shall be perpetual wastes. That has happened. That area of the world today is basically desert with a few small Bedouin villages, these wandering nomads set up villages in the wilderness. There's no major cities within 100 miles of this area. 
Now, Petra used to be a highly prosperous trade center, even at the beginning of the Roman Empire. Okay? It was started probably way back with Esau's descendants. But it became a highly prosperous trade center and a fortress that was basically considered impenetrable. Okay? But very quickly after the Roman Empire took over, it declined rapidly in, um, in importance and in significance, especially after a great earthquake that happened around the first century. Um, I'm sorry, around 363 A.D., uh, a lot of the people were killed. Many of the structures that were built there collapsed, and it was abandoned for all practical purposes. Other than serving as a temporary fortress for the Crusaders in the 12th century, it has remained largely uninhabited since the end of the 6th century. And so God kept his promise about Edom. I will make it a desolation. Hardly anybody lives there. No civilization to speak of. No commerce at all. Now, the mountain city of Petra laid barren and unknown and forgotten for hundreds of years until 1912 when a Swiss tourist came upon it. I'm not going to say by accident or coincidence. I think it was by God's plan. But it was rediscovered. And it generated a whole bunch of interest among the archaeological community. So people started going there and doing archaeological digs, and they wanted to see this rock city carved into the mountain. And so much interest was generated that it became a tourist attraction in 1985. And just 2019, before COVID hit, they had over a million visitors visit Petra, this rock city carved into a mountain. Again, I mentioned there's no major cities within 100 miles of it. The biggest civilized center is actually the village that formed around the visitor center that they built there for the tourist attraction. Okay? And then there's a bunch of little small villages that just kind of are scattered across the wilderness there. It's 125 miles south of Jerusalem. Okay? So just keep this in perspective, what I'm describing. Now let me share some facts about this city from the Jewish perspective to give you some more stuff to work with here. We've already seen the name for it was Basra in the Old Testament. That's a Hebrew word, the Hebrew name for this area. What Basra means in Hebrew is sheepfold. Remember that. It means sheepfold. That's what the word means. If you look at this city from a map or if you go visit it, the main entrance into this area, this rock city, is a large, I'm sorry, a long cavern that is very deep, three quarters of a mile wide and very narrow. Basically, it looks just like a crack in the rocks that's wide enough to walk through. And there are places in that crevice that are only wide enough for two or three people to stand side by side. Okay? So we're only talking maybe six, seven feet wide at some places. It would be impossible for any kind of armed modern warfare machines to go through that crevice. Impossible. Okay? Now, raising sheep is a common trade in the Mideast. It even was, especially during the biblical times. But let me give you a little lesson on shepherding. Okay? In biblical times, the sheep would basically graze on the mountainside during the day, and at nighttime, the shepherd would build a sheepfold, basically pile up rocks or logs or sticks or whatever he could find, and build a pen. 
And it would be either round or square, but it would be completely surrounded except for one small passage wide enough for only one sheep to pass through at a time. And the shepherd would herd his sheep into that sheepfold, and then he would lay down in the door to block the door to protect the sheep at night. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about in John 10 when he said, I am the door. He lays in the door. He is the protection for us if we are in his sheepfold. Okay? Now, this picture of Petra with this very narrow cavern entering into this city that's surrounded by mountains otherwise is a great picture of a sheepfold. That's why in Hebrew it's called sheepfold, Basra. Okay? But it's an area of protection that Jesus used as an analogy for the protection that he gives to his people. Not a coincidence that it's called Basra by Hebrews. Now, I want to give you some prophetic words or prophetic passages from Scripture, these references to Petra or Basra as it's referred to in Scripture as we build this case for this being this place of refuge, okay? Now, first of all, we know, Dan, uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 6, it says God has prepared this place for them. He's already made it a desolation, and he's wiped out all the people who would inhabit it, so it's empty. It's just tourists now during the tourist season, but it's empty. Nobody lives there. In Daniel chapter 11, the angel comes and gives Daniel this prophecy concerning Israel in the end times. And he tells him of the Antichrist that's to come, and he describes the Antichrist in chapter 11. But in verse 41, this is what he says about the Antichrist conquests, okay? He, talking about the Antichrist, shall enter also into the glorious land, that's Israel. Many countries shall be overthrown. We know that. The Antichrist is going to come across and conquer most of the nations or all the nations of the world. They're all going to be under his control. So it says, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hands, even Edom, Moab, and Ammon. That's this area. The Antichrist will not take control of that area for some reason. I believe it's God's hand. It's God's providence. So Edom, Moab, and Ammon are spared by conquest of the Antichrist and left alone probably because there's not much of value. There's hardly any people there, and it's not worth his time. But God has prepared a place for Israel to flee. In Isaiah chapter 16, verse 4, God prophetically exhorts the people of Moab. This is before Moab ceased to exist. But it's the area, the people who exist in this area of Moab. But God uh, prophetically exhorts the people of Moab in Isaiah 16, and Isaiah speaks to them in this prophetic manner. He says, let mine outcast dwell with thee, outcast of Israel. Let mine outcast dwell with thee. As for Moab, be thou a covert or protection to him from the face of the destroyer. That's prophetic. And he goes on, for the extortioner is brought to naught, destruction seetheth, oppressors are consumed out of the land. Talks about the end times. There's prophecy here about the end times when Jesus will come back, but just before he does, Moab should be a protection for the outcasts of Israel. Okay? So Jews will become outcasts in the second half of the tribulation, being chased out of their own country by the Antichrist, 
Moab is where Jordan exists now. That's where Petra is. And that area is to be a protection of the fleeing people of Israel to escape the destroyer. You see the picture so far? Okay. In Micah chapter 2, verse 12, God says this. I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, as a flock in the midst of their pasture. They shall make a great noise by reason of the multitude of men. Again, prophetic of the end times. And he says, I will put them together as the sheep of Basra, naming the place as a flock in the midst of their pasture, and they make great noise because of the reason of the multitude of men, the army that's coming against them. If you look at verse 15 in Revelation 12, it says, The serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. That's a great army. Now, I'm going to explain that in just a minute. But that's the great army that's coming after Israel to destroy them from the Antichrist, and God protects Israel here at this place. And we see it in Micah 2.12. God actually says the sheep of Basra. So there's a very good, uh, um, a very good case here to say that this is the place of protection. Moving on to Isaiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 17. Again, prophetic of the end times. The sinners in Zion are afraid, fearful, hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with the everlasting burnings? He that walketh uprightly and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressions, that shaketh his hands from holding of bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing of evil. He shall dwell on high. His place of defense, listen closely, his place of defense shall be the munitions or the protection of rocks, Bread shall be given to him, his waters shall be sure. Now look at verse 14 again in chapter 12 of Revelation. To the young woman were given two wings of great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time. And Isaiah prophetically says they will be secure or have defense in the munitions of rocks. Bread shall be given him. His waters shall be sure. And then, in verse 17 in Isaiah chapter 33, it says, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. This is where the remnant of Israel will be when Christ comes back. And they will see him, literally, come to earth to destroy his enemies from this secure location. That's where he will start. That takes us to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4, starts this way. Prophetic of Christ coming back in his second coming. It says, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? And it goes on to explain how Christ tramples his enemy through the valley from Basra all the way up to Jerusalem. And his robes are stained with the blood of his enemies. That's Isaiah chapter 63. And so when you take all of this scriptural evidence together, you have a very good picture that this is the place of refuge that God has already prepared. Now, I mentioned Christ's second coming, and that's where he's going to come. Now, a lot of people say he's going to come on the Mount of Olives. Okay, he will ascend the Mount of Olives in victory after he kills all of his enemies. Okay, and that will begin 
the millennial kingdom, when he starts to set up his kingdom on earth. But when he comes back, he will come at Basra, Isaiah 63, and trample his enemies on his way to Jerusalem. Okay? So Basra seems to be the place. Now, the fact that Israel is gathered, or many Jews are gathered at this place of security, is the catalyst for Christ's second coming. And, in fact, it's not until these people, the remnant of the Jews, turn and seek Christ as their Messiah at that time that he will return. That is the timing of his return, his second coming, when the remnant go to him and ask him to return as the Messiah. I'm not making that up. Go to Hosea chapter 5, okay? Hosea chapter 5, verse 15. He says, this is the prophet Hosea, and this is prophetically Christ talking through the prophet. He says, I will go and return to my place. He's talking about Israel being rebellious, and he tries, the verses before this, he's trying to get them to repent, but judgment is coming. But he says in verse 15 of Hosea 5, I will go and return to my place. That's heaven. And... Till they acknowledge their offense and seek my face in their affliction, there's the tribulation, they will seek me early. And so Israel has to ask for the Messiah to return before Christ is going to come back at his second coming. And that's exactly what's going to happen here at the end of the tribulation in this place of security that God has prepared for them. In fact, Jesus himself said in Matthew 23, 39, For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, talking to the Jews, you shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus told them when he was coming back, when they asked him to come as their Messiah. And that's what's going to happen at this place of refuge at the end of the tribulation period. So I believe Petra may be very well that place of refuge that God has prepared for these people, these Jewish remnant during the Great Tribulation. Now, there are a lot of people who believe this. In fact, there's already Christian groups who go to Basra or Petra, and they're hiding stores of water and food and Bibles in case this is the place where the Jews will flee And they will have the truth right there and all the things, well, some of the things that they will need. Now, I'm not saying we're going to count on other people feeding them. All right. In verse uh, 6 of Revelation 12, it says, Woman fled to the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. The they there is not translated, um, it's it's not uh, agreed upon as far as the translation by many scholars. Some say it's the Trinity. God's going to provide for them. Some say it's the people that dwell in the area. Some say it's angels. It's not told us. We don't know for certain who's going to provide. God's going to provide ultimately. Okay? But here's the point. Again, it doesn't matter whether people hide food and water there. When Israel was in the wilderness before, remember, a long time ago, when they came out of Egypt, how did God feed them? Manna. Right? They didn't need people to give them food. They didn't need to grow crops. God fed them with manna. God provided water out of the rocks, out of different, certain, uh, different ways that God provided for them to drink. And I believe God can do the same thing here. In fact, if this miraculous provision of food and water comes before the remnant of Israel, maybe that will wake them up 
to the reality of who Christ really is. Okay? So you see all these little pieces here that God is giving us to give us this picture of the end times, what it's going to look like for the Jews and specifically for the remnant that the Antichrist, through Satan's power, is trying to destroy. And then we see the attack against them. So they flee, they find this place of refuge, verse 15, the serpent cast out of his mouth water as of a flood of a woman, after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Now, the attack is great, but it's futile. Because God's protecting them. It doesn't matter what attack comes against God's people. When God's protecting them, they cannot be hurt unless God allows it. And God already said he would protect them here, so they will not be hurt. So Satan, through the Antichrist, casts out this flood. And again, we have to be careful about assuming a literal interpretation, and some scholars do. Some commentators actually said, yeah, I think God, uh, the Satan's going to send this flood of water as they flee from Jerusalem to try to drown them all. The problem is they're all coming from different directions, okay? Or maybe it's a flood that goes down that narrow cavern. I don't know. Okay, that, that's their interpretation. But we have so much symbolic language already in this chapter. This seems to be symbolic as well. And God has used this analogy of a flood to describe armies before in prophecy, In Jeremiah chapter 47, verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, the waters rise up out of the north and shall be an overflowing flood. There's the same word. And shall overflow the land and all that is therein, the city and them that dwell therein. Then the men shall cry and all the inhabitants of the land shall howl. Jeremiah was not talking about the flood of Noah. Okay, Jeremiah was not talking about a flood of water that was about to come over the earth or over Israel. There was no flood after the flood of Noah that destroyed Israel. This is prophecy about the armies of Babylon coming to overthrow them. So we have this picture already of a flood of armies. The imagery here is the same as we have in Revelation chapter 12. So I believe this flood that comes out of the mouth of the Antichrist and Satan himself is an army that Satan sends against him. In fact, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, again, referring to the Antichrist, Daniel gets this prophecy, and the people of the prince, that's the Antichrist, that shall come to destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, the temple, and the end thereof shall be with a flood, not water, armies, war, okay? And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. That's Daniel 9.26. So we have this picture of floods symbolizing armies, and I believe that's what Revelation chapter 12 is talking about here. It's a great army that comes against these fleeing Jews as they try to escape. But then look at verse 16 in Revelation 12 for God's intervention. Okay, he's already prepared a place. Now Satan tries to destroy them on their way or even after they're there, and here's God's intervention. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Now, we can say, okay, well, there's a lot of imagery here. What's the imagery? I don't know. Okay? So we might be able to say here that God actually creates an earthquake that opens up and swallows the entire army. Is that far-fetched? No, he's done it before. Okay, remember Korah, the rebellious Israelite and his band that followed him when they rebelled against the authority of Moses and other leaders in the wilderness. And God told Moses and Aaron and all the people of Israel, stand back. 
because I'm about to judge him. And the earth opened up and swallowed Korah and all his band whole and then closed back up and all the people stood there and watched it happen. And then the Bible says in number 16, great fear came upon all of them. Because that's how mighty God is. The earth is under his control. He can use it for whatever purpose he desires. And so if he swallowed up Korah, he certainly can swallow up an army. It's his earth. It's his weapon. And he can do something like that. It's not beyond God's power or authority to be able to do that, to swallow up an entire army in the earth. Remember, in, in uh, uh, Exodus, we already talked about Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Where were they finally delivered from Egypt? At the Red Sea. God opened up the Red Sea. They crossed on dry land. But that's not the end of the story. What happened to the Egyptian army? They followed in, and then God brought the sea over them and drowned the entire army. How many Jews had to fight? Zero. They didn't have to lift a finger. In fact, that's where that phrase, stand, st- stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, comes from, that event. Later on in Israel's history, the Assyrian army is coming against Jerusalem. They've already conquered the northern territories and the northern kingdom, and now they're coming against Israel. And King Hezekiah goes to God and prays to God for help. And God basically again tells him the same thing. Trust me, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And Hezekiah and all his people go to bed, and in the morning they wake up and look out, and there's 185,000 dead soldiers laying on the ground. No one had to fight. And so here, it seems God destroys an entire army again. And no one has to fight. Okay? That's God's protection and his deliverance. Now, when, in our lives, when we think, well, you know, there's no way that anything good could come out of this event that I'm in or circumstance that I'm in in my life, or I don't see how I can avoid being hurt or catastrophe coming upon us. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Okay, that's what faith is all about. These people, God is teaching them to have faith. And again, you've seen miraculous provision, miraculous protection, miraculous deliverance, You see the message that God is trying to use to get Israel's attention? And so Satan turns again because he's frustrated. He didn't get him this time. Verse 17, the dragon was wroth with the woman, went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Satan redirects his wrath. Okay, I can't get these people now. So the people that I have access to that didn't flee to the place of refuge, those are the people I'm going after because... Obviously, God's not going to protect them. At least that's what he thinks. Now, we know there are many who are going to come through the tribulation unscathed. 144,000 witnesses. They are sealed by God that they cannot be hurt. They will survive the entire tribulation period. Okay? Now, there are lots of martyrs that we looked at back in the sixth, uh, sixth seal. I'm sorry, the... I think it was the sixth seal. Maybe it was the fifth seal. Anyway, the martyrs. It was the fifth seal. The martyrs under the altar who are killed during the tribulation. Okay, God still delivers them because now they're safe from the Antichrist and from his evil. They're in heaven, though. But there are many whose God is going to protect on the earth through this time beyond the 144,000 witnesses that he sealed, beyond even 
this remnant that is, hel- that is uh, protected in this secure place that God has provided for them. But who are these people that Satan is going against, that he's going to try to destroy? It says the remnant. Now, the word remnant here is a different word from the word used to describe the remnant of Israel that shall be saved. Okay, I want you to understand that. It's still a remnant, means part of, but it better is interpreted the rest of. And what it's talking about is the rest of, those who are not protected in the place of refuge. All those who have trusted in Christ during the tribulation who are still alive that did not go to the place of refuge. Who are these people? Well, it says, the remnant of her seed, who's her? That's Israel. So we know there's more Jews who are not in the place of refuge that Satan is going to go after through the Antichrist. But then look at the description, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who is the true seed of Israel? Paul describes that in Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. He says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye are Christ's, then ye are Abraham's seed. All people who trust in Christ. Satan knows who God's people are. The Antichrist, through Satan's influence and power, will go against not just those remaining Jews who are not in Petra, but against anybody who proclaims the name of Christ. Christians, there's your martyrs. Now remember, all of this begins to happen about the midpoint of the tribulation. Okay? And so not just Jews are killed. Christians are killed. Millions of people die at the hand of the Antichrist in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. This is when it gets ratcheted up big time. This is when death becomes more common than water. And remember, water is scarce by now. Okay? But Satan is out to get anyone who follows Christ at this time because he knows that Christ is coming back. And he's soon going to be defeated and he's going to be bound and cast into the abyss when Christ comes to set up his millennial kingdom. Satan knows this. And that's why he's going to do everything he can to try to stop it. But he's not going to be successful. Like every other attack of Satan against God's people, this effort will fail ultimately. To, uh, he cannot interfere with God's plan. He cannot thwart God's plan. He cannot reverse God's plan. God's plan will succeed. And so when God gives a promise, as he has to Israel, he will fulfill that promise. Now, I've given you a lot of information about the end times and about this fleeing of Israel, the remnant of Israel to this secure place, this place of protection that God has prepared. What what does that have to do with us? The point is we have the same God today that's going to be in charge then. Okay? God has given us many promises of protection and provision. So why do we doubt? Why are we afraid? Why do we live like God's not going to do what he said he's going to do? He is our place of refuge. We read that this morning. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And 
We know the end of the story. We're reading it right now in Revelation. We know the end of the story. God wins. So as scary and as weird and as strange as all of these things might seem, we go, man, you know, it would be interesting to, to see this, but I don't want to be part of it. It really doesn't matter because God's going to deliver us. I mean, he may come today and take us to heaven, and then we'll be done with this earth, okay? If we're not believers, and Christ comes back, and we're stuck on this earth, and we end up going through this, now we have some truth to work on from there. There are people going to be saved during the tribulation, lots of them. It's not going to be easy, but it will be worth it. Because they will be delivered in the end. And that's God's promise. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them out of them all, the Bible says. That's a promise. And so why do we doubt? Why do we fear? Why do we not trust God? It's the same God we have today who's going to be orchestrating all of this then. And that's the encouraging part of this. God's promise to protect his remnant. Here's a perfect example of it in Revelation chapter 12 at the end of earthly history before the millennial kingdom. And he's going to do the same thing for us today. Now, he may not usher us through the wilderness to a cave, but he will protect us and he will provide for us just as he promised. Next week, we go to chapter 13. Chapter 13 gives us an inside, detailed look at this person called the Antichrist. Okay, still we're in this parenthetical uh, kind of pause between the sixth and seventh trumpet before the seventh trumpet actually takes effect, trying to fill in the gaps. We're going to look and see who this person, the Antichrist, really is. All right, but that's where we'll go next week. So for today, we'll stop there. And let's pray and thank the Lord for what he's taught us today. Lord, thank you again that you have given us your word, and in it we can find all wisdom that we need to know, all prophecy about what's to happen, about what your plan is for the earth and your plan for our life. And Lord, help us not to get so enamored with the small details and all of the facts that we miss the big picture, that you will fulfill your covenants and your promises, that you are a protection for your people and you will deliver us that you will provide for us as you have promised, and that you will be our guide even unto death. And so, Lord, I pray that you would teach us to trust you as we study this. Give us boldness in being a testimony of Christ. Give us courage to stand forth in truth, trusting that you will take care of us. And, Lord, help us to be consistent in being that light and salt that you have called us to be in the world. Lord, we look forward to that day when we will be with you but help us to be faithful until you call us home. And we'll thank you for your power, for your presence, and for your provision. Lord, just bless us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn this morning is number uh, 282, Hiding in Thee. Hiding in Thee. That should be the state of our life. We are hiding in Christ.